And welcome to Just My Opinion. I am your host, Ken Lambert. Today we're going to bring you the final installment, part four, of the my interview with uh, Jeremy Boudet. And, and it's part of our uh, interview series. And in this part, uh, we continue to talk about China and their uh, effect on the U.S. economy. Enjoy. And they could crash the American economy if they wanted to. Yeah. Um, the, it, it, they're nothing else but excellent learners. Um, yeah, Nixon they, taught them a lot. They, yes, <laughs> and, and then they have been paying attention, and they're they're they are now better at the game than than we have ever been. Um, and just uh, well, it's not a free market. We believe in free markets here. They don't. They believe in market manipulation, currency manipulation. But uh, I mean, the your your example of the the uh, Pacific Island. Um, that, that that's a common practice throughout uh, American history. The uh, stuff that Americans have done, um, you know, and, and and sometimes yes, it's been through invasion because uh, the spoils of war and stuff like that. But um, you know, uh, there's there there are examples out there that of um, American uh, government doing the same thing. In small countries, and and what it is is we don't take things back. We just have an enormous amount of influence. You're right, we did it in, in Turkey during the Cold War. It was a strategic position against the Soviet Union. Uh, Poland. Yep, uh, Poland. You know, you yep. Know, if you want help from us, you want you money, know. you're going to allow us to put this base here. That, that's it. And, and and it's not like I, we're, we're not we're not taking anything away from you. We just we just want to have our little area. Plus, we want to have influence on what you're doing, and. Um, and as long as you look to us uh, for certain things, we'll make sure that uh, the Russian bear stays on his side of the mm-hmm. fence. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. Um, but I, I really think that the, the Chinese seem to be taking it to a new level. They, uh, they, uh, I, I think that they're really good at it. I don't, I don't think that the um, after seeing uh, what the Japanese did in the eighties. China's they move slow. Yeah, it's a fifty-year plan. It, yeah, it's yep. methodical. It's thought out, and they know that there there's uh there's nothing to gain by crashing our economy. And there they when they take it and when they take everything, it's going to be worth a lot. You know what I mean? T- taking uh, uh crashing the American economy and stuff like that, um, it doesn't make those warheads go away. You yeah. understand what I'm saying? Well, yeah. So, so yeah. It, they, there's no strategic uh, value in in um, crashing anything right now, um, but they're going to figure out a way that they're going to beat us at the at our own game, and if we don't stop um, allowing their influence, especially you know, and I I did a podcast about it not too long ago about sports, um, that um, if we stop. We need to stop letting them have influence in, um, you know, like uh, uh, the basketball, you know, the NBA, and having having them throw. The Chinese people love basketball. Believe it or not, they love basketball. And so they take all these um, mediocre basketball players who are uh, who are not talent, quite talented enough to play in the NBA, and, and you know one of them because he uh, 
he used to go to high school up uh, uh, yeah. where you did. Jer- yeah, uh, free debt. Yeah. Yep. And um, but he go he can go over to China and play basketball and they love it. Yeah, and he makes a zillion dollars. He makes a zillion dollars. Yep. And but because they've opened up another market for basketball, you know that I mean, and we're not talking um, the, the Canadian Football League. We're talking about. Uh, yeah. And actually, uh, a yeah, pretty huge, good market, huge of, stadiums. Yeah, yep. Oh yeah, yep. And uh, plenty of fans, and um, and for players like that to go over there, who have incredible careers, but they're just playing in China. Yep. And um, and it also allows uh, China to peddle their influence with um, because they want this market to continue. The NBA wants it to, and the pro players want it to. Um, they're the able to, and they're able to, to, to peddle their influence here. And, and next thing you know, um, you've got players that are wearing jerseys that have, uh, cool logos on them. And, um, you know, um, and, and it's the same thing with, uh, you know, you know, and then it goes on to the, with the, the, the shaming and, 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 and the rest, why we're painting on our, uh, uh, baseball mounds pitching mounds of BLM and uh, in, in our end zones and stuff like that. But but like back to my point, the Chinese have a lot of influence in some in some areas um, with some people who uh, uh, have a vested interest in and in I mean there's a lot of money and we're not and then we're not just talking uh, you know uh, pocket chains and stuff. These guys are going on and like you said they're he uh, you have some mediocre players that are going over and playing in the league and making big bucks as if, as if they were playing in the NBA. Um, but it's in a different league for Chinese people. Yeah, I mean, we, we you you sort of mentioned earlier, maybe you asked about it, you know, how, you know, if, if they're not going to invade, how do they... You know, how do they take? Do they take over, buy a bunch of stuff, and then and then hold that influence over us, like threaten to sell it? And I don't think that's what they're going to do. I think that if if we look at this from an economic or a capitalist standpoint, you know, years ago, VW got big enough that they could buy Audi, but they didn't. They didn't destroy the Audi infrastructure, right? They left the Audi brand. Because it had value, right? It had a, it was a luxury car company. It had value. It had a, a, a loyal customer base. It had a culture that was surrounded around, around it. And part of what they were buying when they bought Audi was that name, was that value that was associated with it. One day, at some point, we're all going to wake up and we're going to realize that, oh, you work for a Chinese company? Oh, you work for a Chinese company? Oh, you work for it? But the name hasn't changed. Yeah, everybody works for a Chinese company. Everybody works for it. You go high enough the food chain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. Our no, no. Our headquarters is actually in Denmark. Yeah. Yeah, but it's owned by the Beijing blah 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 whatever company. Yeah, it's it's, it's just the it's it's like the 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 boots and the and the hats made in northern Italy by Chinese. Yeah. Exactly. You know. Precisely. It's, it's all owned. So they're going to want to keep the American brand as long as that American brand mm-hmm. has value, right? And it's, it's you know, it's the same thing for a lot of the people that I know. It's like, no, our headquarters is in the United States. Well, yeah, it might, your North American headquarters might be in the United States. Your world headquarters might be in the United States. But guess what? 
your shareholders all live in Shanghai because <laughs> that's, you know, that's how they're going to do it. That's how they're going to peddle that kind of influence. And it's going to be, it's going to be almost impossible to escape because it's going to become more and more difficult to identify without actually being a part of the company when and where that actually exists. And um, do you think that because they are a communist country? They're not. They're not communist. I, uh, I mean, yes, <laughs> I, I, they are in the fact that they're they're ruled. They're kind of communist in name only. <laughs> um, but do you think that that keeps them from uh, doing what happened to what's happening to us? Getting so big and 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 getting so fat and and swelling to out when you when you're grabbing a little bit of the pie from everybody and you're getting into all the markets and stuff, uh, you always have that uh, that risk of uh, spreading yourself too thin. And um, what's what's to keep them from? Um, you know, are they too disciplined? To, uh, you know what I mean? To, well, like you said, the, the every next thing you know, every company is going to be Chinese owned. But what's going to keep them from being too big? And um, yeah, you know what I mean. They're playing the fifty to a hundred year game, right? So if you could go back to your early twenties. And you could, with all the knowledge that you have now, not just about who's going to win the World Series in 2008, right? <laughs> That's got value in and of itself, right? right. Um, but if you could go back knowing in general, right, not necessarily specifics about where the market's going to move, I'm sure that if you could go back, the first thing that you would do is you would diversify your portfolio. You'd buy a little bit of this, you buy a little bit of that, because if you buy enough stuff, you can't lose Right. Because markets are, are shifting. And in a way, there's not exactly, but in a way, there's sort of a zero sum. You know, when markets trend down, gold trends up hard gold, hard assets tend to. Tr so if you're invested in both of those things, you might lose a little over here, but you're going to gain a whole bunch over there. And again, in the end, you do that supply and demand dance. And over the long term, 50 to 100 years, you're going to end up better off than you would be if you had only invested in gold or only invested in gross stock mutual funds, or, you know, whatever it happens to be. And I think it's the same perspective that China is taking. They're saying, we're going to invest a little bit in Africa. We're going to invest a bunch in the United States, a bunch in South America, all over the place. We're going to buy all these assets so that when World War breaks out, if anybody's living at the end of it, it's most likely going to be us and we're going to have everything, right? It really doesn't matter if there's a famine that strikes in Africa because they've got assets everywhere else, right? And so if you kick the leg out of a six-stool chair, you're still going to be fine, right? Mm -hmm. But if you only have two legs, three legs, and you kick one of those out, you're in really big trouble. You're going to go down. They're just playing the long game. They're extraordinarily patient. They're extraordinarily disciplined. They, they aren't interested in being the best country, being the top country today. They're interested in being the top company in 20 years, 30 years, 50 years. And if you look at every successful large-scale American company, it is the exact same mentality. Simon Sinek tells this story about when he got in, um, I think he was with, I think it was with Steve Jobs. 
he it was years and years ago. Steve Jobs was still around, and Jobs had recently come out with the iPod. This is at least how I remember him telling the story. And he wanted to kind of give him a hard time, and he knew that Microsoft had just come out with a similar multimedia player, and it was a beautiful piece of hardware. The interface was really wonderful. It had great sound quality, nice uh, accessories and features on it, and it was just a beautiful, and he happened to have one on him that he got as a gift from a talk that he had given to Microsoft, you know, recently within the last couple of months. And he wanted to rip them a little bit. And so while they were waiting in the car to go out and do the talk together, he pulled his out and he said, Hey, you know, I heard you came out with this new musical device. And I just got to tell you, I'm trying out this new device that Microsoft put out and it is beautiful. It is an awesome piece, you know, and I love having it. And it's really cool. And I guess all the Steve Jobs said is I'm sure it is. Because he's not, he's in a race, but he's not looking around at what all the other competitors are doing. He has himself, he has his strategy set clearly inwards. He has his path forward, and he's going to run it at his pace. And his pace is going to be designated at the pace that he feels he needs to be at to be ahead in 2020, 2030, 2040, not in 2005 or whenever this incident happened. He doesn't care if Microsoft has a better media player today. He's going to have a better media player in five years, 10 years, 20 years. Mm-hmm. And true to form, unfortunately, it happened after his death, but I think it was last year, maybe it was the year before, Apple is the first company ever in the history of the world to break a trillion dollars in value, the first private company to ever break a trillion dollars in value. So... You play that long-term game, you play that infinite game, that game that goes on into forever. You diversify your assets and look at Apple. They're not just computers. They're, it's, it's iTunes, right? It's music. If you want to download a song, where are you going to go? You're going to go to iTunes now, right? You're going to store all of your information on the cloud. They do computers. They do art design. They do, it's, it's a whole they do Apple TV and all the apps that go along with that, all the features, all the advertising, all that stuff, all the games and podcasts and all that stuff. It's it's all linked together into one big thing. And it's growing, right? Now they're talking about the iPad and the iTouch and the iPen and Google's doing the same thing with the Google Glass, right? They're not they're not satisfied with just having control over search and advertising, right? They want to look more at the interface and they're starting to grow and you know, it's the same model. China is using that same long-term capitalistic strategic model to find success. And so, look, let's take Hong Kong, what's going on right now, right? They're doing this huge crackdown in Hong Kong, right? And let's say the United States rolls in there ham-fisted like we would maybe 50 or 100 years ago, right, in order to maintain our influence. We roll in there with a 1,000 battleships, our army, our navy, our air force is way more powerful and way more numerous than them. We roll in, we steamroll them, we push them off the island, right? China just goes, all right, we'll try again in five years. And they continue doing, right, knowing that the beast is going to fall asleep, right? That we're going to, our attention is going to be pulled over into the Middle East with another war. There's going to be another terrible terrorist attack and we're going to be distracted. And they're just going to keep, they're just going to keep that subversive, right? And then eventually when the time is right again, they're going to rush in again and they're going to try it again. And it's, it's all about 
future looking. They don't worry about failing today or tomorrow. They put themselves in a strategic position to be successful in five years, 10 years, 20 years. They pursue that plan regardless of what anybody else does. Yeah, they're responsive when things directly impact them. If the entire global economy crashes, they might cool things down a little bit, right? Or Mm -hmm. shift the way that some of their resources are allocated. I mean, they're not going to be you know, they're not going to put the blinders on and be entirely unfocused, but they're not worried about the German economy. They're not worried about relations between the United States and Mexico or whether the United States builds the wall or not. They're not distracting themselves with that kind of stuff for them. The next domino that has to fall is Hong Kong. And then after that, it has to be, uh, I don't know, Taiwan. And then after that, they have to invade the controversial portion of India, right? Where there's that weird area where, you know, does China own it? Does India own it? I don't know, right? right? And they just slowly, slowly, slowly grow until again, you wake up one day and you're like, hey, didn't that country exist a year ago? Like like Russia did with uh, with Ukraine, right? It was the exact same thing. We all just woke up one day and all of a sudden Ukraine was missing an island, <laughs> you know? <laughs> that's That's, it's a brilliant strategy. They're using capitalism against us. It's... And, and basically, uh, how can we bitch when it was our game? So, and they, they just got better at it than we did. You know, it's, it, it's like uh, it's uh, eventually the, um, the student becomes the master, you know. And, on, and, on, and, I, and I really believe that and that uh, they, they have been – really uh really good like i said uh, students uh, of watching and and letting us make all the mistakes that you can possibly make as a capitalist country that is the the you know uh, the envy of the world the uh, having the economy that we did i mean you think about it since world war uh two when um we we were such an industrial uh, machine, and um, you know we we fought under a, a, the same cause of the, hey we're going over, and we're gonna uh, first we're gonna kick some, uh, the Japs' butts for uh, for bombing uh, Hawaii, and then then we're going over and kicking Hitler's ass, and um, and we're gonna have plenty of planes and we're gonna have plenty of uh, tanks and stuff, and um, but. We grew from that because if you think about it, before that, um, between World War One and World War Two, we were—I mean, we were okay, we were cool, but we weren't this huge um, economic uh, uh, giant. No, I mean, the British were, were still a very strong empire, right? The sun still didn't set on the British Empire. I think they still had India until the 1940s. Yeah. Um, you know, they still had Taiwan until the 1980s. Obviously, they had assets in South America, Africa still. I mean, most of the uh, East African nations didn't gain their independence until the 60s. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the sun, even as late as the 1950s and 60s, the sun didn't set, never set on the, on the British Empire. So um, I think that um, I don't think I think they're using capitalist principles in order to take advantage, but they are not participating in capitalism. I mean, this is not the reason why they're able to do better than we did, quote unquote, is that they don't, they have found a way to manipulate the system in such a way, two things. 
I'm going to get myself into trouble again here. Um, I was having a conversation some months ago with an acquaintance of mine that moved to the United States from China. And this acquaintance was quite successful in China. I don't have all the details of what they did, but I believe that they were involved in some type of trade. I don't know if they had like an import-export company or something like that. But they achieved a good level of success. And right around the time that Barack Obama was elected, they immigrated to the United States and they achieved citizenship very quickly. So since then, for the last 12 years, they've been living in in the United States of America. Um, They had a couple of kids, um, one of which was born in China and moved over here when she was quite young. And the other one, I think, was born here in the United States. Neither one of them basically speak Chinese anymore. They're basically fully, fully integrated. You know, they can still kind of get along to get along with Chinese, but they're losing it. They're not using it at home. And except for, um, you know, the, uh, the mother and the father. And when they call back to their relatives in China, maybe there's some coworkers that they speak to like that, but they basically only speak the language between themselves. Anyways, all that's to say they've been living in this country for a while. They've gained citizenship and I was talking to them about a lot of the same stuff that you and I are talking about generally. And it was right around the same time that coronavirus had broken out and Wuhan lab was in the news and all that kind of stuff. And I was challenging them on some of the topics, you know, like, Hey, here in America, we appreciate free speech. And you imprisoned your country, imprisoned this doctor that was speaking out as a whistleblower. Oh, no, they didn't. They didn't imprison him. Well, no, they didn't. They arrested him and they told him he was being really bad. And they made him write a letter basically rescinding everything that he said before. And they threatened him and they threatened his livelihood and they threatened his family. So, no, you're right. Technically, they didn't do that, but they clearly aren't supporting free speech. Well, they just don't want him to, you know, they just don't want him to, they didn't want him to be spreading misinformation. And I'm like, well, he wasn't spreading misinformation. He was spreading the truth. Well, yeah, but we didn't know that at the time. And I'm like, well, then what's the harm? What's the harm? Here in the United States, we say, we let the crazy people talk, right? That's, we let the crazy people say they're crazy and knowing full well that a certain portion of the population is going to get on the plane and go to Jonestown, and they are going to drink the Kool-Aid, right? And it's going to be really terrible when that happens, but guess what? There haven't been any Jonestown since Jonestown, and that was in the 70s, I think that happened? Yes. Yeah. In late 70s. Yeah, it was late 70s. Yeah, 76 or something that happened, 78. So anyways, the point being, we were sort of having a discussion over ideology, right? And... I started challenging him on some of the stuff that's going on with the Uyghurs, you know, and some of that, you know, concentration camp, trying to eliminate Muslims and stuff like that. And you could tell there was some frustration. He was starting to get a little bit frustrated. And there was a long pause, a long beat in the conversation. And basically he said, you know, all the things you brought up might be valid here in the United States, but the Chinese people don't care. As long as the economy continues to grow, as long as they continue to be richer next year than they were the year before, they don't care if 
5% or 10% or 20% of the population is enslaved, sent to concentration camps, executed, whatever, right? And that's the principle that the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party seems to be relying upon. Make most of the people happy most of the time, and we don't have to worry about putting down an insurrection, or worse, the insurrection becoming successful, right, and completely supplanting the government, right? Right. And so the conversation continued, and I was talking to him about how I was um, really excited about getting started on this biography of Ulysses S. Grant, and how I really looked up to him as an American figure, and he, you know, how I think he was a, a pretty good president, even though he got a bad rap and all that kind of stuff. And he kind of rolled rolled his eyes, and he said, "Man, I don't know how you can look up to somebody like that as president." And I said, "Why?" And he said, um, "Well." He just, he, you know, he's responsible for the deaths of so many people and not just other people in other countries. These are American citizens that, that died, you know, over a half a million of them died. And I said, I said, it's funny you bring that up. The reason why I look up to him so much is because he represents the leadership of an ideology that takes the exact opposite position of what you're saying the Chinese people are currently taking. Back before 1865, half, literally more than half of the country didn't care that half of the country was enslaved. They didn't care. We decided that the economic advantages of slavery were no longer worth the principles that were established in the Constitution, sacrificing those principles. The, uh, the, the, the American people stood up and 500,000 men died in order to ensure that equal rights would be achieved regardless of the color of your skin, right? That was the turning point. That was when America, in my opinion, became more moral than economical. And I told I said, I think one day China is going to go through that. I hope one day China goes through that, but they're not there right now. And I hope that one day there's a leader that your children or your grandchildren or your great-grandchildren can look up to like Ulysses S. Grant, someone that led that charge and decide it's going to happen. It's going to happen. China is where America was 100 years ago, 150 years ago, whatever. It's going to happen. And at some point, people are going to get wealthy enough and they're going to get stable enough in their country that they are going to start caring about the environment. They are going to start caring about civil rights. They are going to start caring about equal protections under the law. They are going to start caring about freedom of religion. They're going to get wealthy enough and they're going to have enough free time that they're going to give a shit when people don't have clean water or that they're being treated poorly by their government or that they're being executed without a trial. And when that happens, America did that in 18, started. They took the first real step in that direction in 1865, right? It wasn't at least for another hundred years before the dream, I think, was really realized Truly, and the battle is still being fought today. But, you know, that ideology of, oh, God, he, he just, he killed so many people. No, it's not that simple. He, that was a necessary part of the process. It was a painful part of the process. But that's something that's worth looking up to. It was, it was, uh, it was the worst growing pain in American history. Yeah. <laughs> but we had to go through it in order to be the country that we are today. Oh, and by the way, that's the country that you immigrated to. And it's the country that you continue to live in, and it's the country that you're raising your children in. And, and, and I guess my, uh, my, my thought of the whole thing uh, throughout the story is, uh, and why did he? 
why did he come to this country? And uh, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, this ain't where the party's at. What are you doing here? Yeah. Yeah. So, but anyways, that's a, a good place to leave it at uh, two two sixteen. Can we can we just close this? I just want to say I hold a ridiculous number of records yeah. on this podcast, right? <laughs> first guest, first repeat guest, longest time behind the mic. Can we just get a plaque together and keep it on the wall? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And I, I think we should, uh, and, and we'll be definitely keeping record of how many appearances. Um, uh, and, and believe me, if you weren't states away, uh, it would be a lot more often, and, and we could probably do it in, uh, you know, 30 minutes and 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 have you're, a quick yeah you're right yeah <laughs> if we weren't trying to play catch up but anyways um as, as always uh thank you um for your your wisdom and your and your time um thank you and uh agree or disagree uh our listeners uh, have plenty to think about but uh i don't i may end up splitting this into a couple of different uh podcasts uh the the, the last hour is a lot of economic things. I don't so, want anyone falling asleep. So, but <laughs> but we uh, we may split it up. Uh, but uh, there's there's like I said, and, and it's the one thing that I hope uh, uh, that every time I do this is that uh, we give everybody something, just a little something to think about. But that's just my opinion. What do I know? Until next time, America. We'd like to hear your opinions. So uh, feel free to email us at jmo2kel at gmail.com. That's jmo, the number two, kel at gmail.com.